Welcome to the Power Forward Pod, hosted by the Power Forward Financial Advisory Team, where we believe two is better than one, dialogues are better than monologues, thoughts were meant to be challenged, and change is the only constant. So visit us at our website, powerforwardgroup.com, uh, and we have a fun topic for today. Yeah. Have you guys been busy this time of year? Busy with clients? Uh, super busy at the end of the year, super busy at the beginning of the year, and then we just hang out. Yeah. Uh-huh. The most part. Yeah. yeah. Super busy. Uh, we've been busy. Uh, a lot of us here work with a lot of businesses and you know, even just regular clients are doing all their foreign K elections this time of year. All right, end of year, got to make sure you're doing all that stuff. Uh, you guys do your foreign K? Power forward group foreign K? I did it back in November. I took care of it. Hit my elections. Thought about it for five and a half minutes and we got rolling and ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. What, what type do you do? What type do I do into my 401k? Well, which type of 401k? I do traditional 401k. You do traditional, yeah. As for those listening out there, there's a couple different types of 401ks. 401k is a retirement and employer-sponsored retirement plan that allows you to save money for retirement. Um, two different ways you can do it, right? And it's really focused more on taxes, right? And I don't like taxes. You guys like taxes? Probably not. I don't right. think anybody does. Well, I have bumped into some <laughs> clients in the, in previously who say taxes are a great thing to pay, and I'm very happy to pay my taxes and more. And more, yeah. But we don't believe in tax avoidance, only tax deferral. That's true. So that's one of them, right? Because you can defer taxes for later, or you can do a Roth 401k where you grow that stuff out tax-free on that end. Um, Why is it called a Roth? It was a senator, I think, right? It's, it's, I think it would be an acronym, but Roth is kind of like, all right. Roth 401k. You got to fact check me. I'm pretty sure it's a senator they named after. Sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Chris, why don't we give our, our listeners that, that don't know just a quick um, differentiator between traditional and, and Roth. Yeah. So the tax deferral that Ruben over here is talking about is uh, traditional 401ks when you put the money and you don't pay taxes on it, right? So the limit for the 401k for this year is 22500 Going up next year a little bit, twenty three grand. So you can put away $23,000 that you don't have to pay taxes on. Um, and then it grows deferred each year, which is good, right? Because hopefully that money's going to grow. It's going to compound. Um, then you pay taxes on it, but then you're paying taxes on a bigger number. That's a big reason why a lot of people here in New York go down to Florida or the Carolinas because nobody likes state income taxes on their retirement plans. Um, the Roth is the opposite version of that, right? You say, hey, I'll pay these taxes now. I'll grow that out tax-free. All that money comes out tax-free. So if you, know, you want to retire in San Francisco or New York, you don't have to worry about the taxes coming out on that. Um, what was the history of the 401k? You guys remember when they came back, came out or why they came out? I don't remember because I wasn't born yet, but <laughs> I, I think they're not as old as I thought they'd be. Bobby, when do you think 401ks began? Uh, my guess would be the th- 40s. Chris, what do you think? Take a shot. Yeah, I would say after World uh, War II. Uh, yeah, probably, I'll just say 50s to be different. It does. It feels like something people have been doing forever, right? Turns out not. Oh, wow. Uh, most retirement plans used to be defined benefit plans. Because of pensions. Pensions, right? Pensions. But think about think about the name, right? Benefit is you get a benefit that's defined, uh, and that's your retirement picture. And it was employers who were responsible for defined benefit plans. You weren't responsible for your defined benefit plan. You're responsible to do what you do, which is work. And the the company would make sure that your retirement was defined. Um, but uh, it's a lot of responsibility for companies. Companies got larger. Uh, costs, uh, every company wants to charge less for their product, but if they're paying more and more Previous employees for their retirement plans, it becomes, I think, a heavy lift. So that, that's what it used to be. But the year is 1980, I believe, or 82, um, something in that range. Um, so I think that's that's when the 401k began. Why do you guys think, that, why, why do we think, why, why 401ks? Why do companies offer 401ks and not defined benefit plans often? 
I could take a guess. One of my buddies, close buddies growing up, Steve, his uncle Jimmy was a uh, firefighter. So they, you know, they still have pensions now, but not like they used to be. And uh, I remember the way they calculated his. I mean, he probably retired in the 80s or 90s. It was like the average of your last three years of salary. And they would just give all the senior guys all the overtime. Right? So guys were making 80, 100 grand a year all of a sudden, making 150. And then that was what the, the pension was built off of. Um, Ruben, I know you're not a math guy, but that's that's typically not going to work out if you're going to pay somebody double their salary when they're not working for the rest of their lives. That doesn't sound good. Yeah. It's kind of a little bit like how Social Security works. Were, were companies going out of business for that, or they just quickly had to shut that down? Well, I think companies were – they were fiduciaries for their plan, fiduciaries to their employees currently, and their retired employees. And if you just think about a growing company, right, you're going to have more employees in 20 years than you have in – next 10 years, right? In the next right. 30 years, if you keep growing, you're going to have more and more employees. And then as you enter the retirement stream, kind of like you just mentioned about Social Security in America, right? You have more people entering retirement year over year, and you got to make sure your birth rate, or in this case, your employee rate and the company growth rate can keep up with that. So I think it got top heavy, but I'm not sure if that's directly the reason to change. I don't fully know, but in 1978, there was a change in the tax code, uh, and what I found interesting when I looked into this is you'd assume, okay, so 1978, tax code changed, 401ks were legal. Turns out 401ks were legal in 1978, um, but the IRS had no idea what they were doing. They, they, I don't think it was intended. Uh, when I looked into it, there was a benefits consultant who in 1980 looked into uh, the tax code, read it pretty deeply, and said, wait, there's a way for individuals to take money, put it aside, defer it from taxes, mm -hmm. to our point before, and let it grow out for retirement, let me take this in front of the IRS and fight it. And then he fought for that and won. And once that idea came into being, companies jumped on it and they started to offer it to their employees. From a large company standpoint, we just said, well, it makes a ton of sense, right? You don't have the same requirement you would have on the defined benefit side. Uh, but on the other side of the argument, it also helps small companies. Any ideas why, why it helps small companies? I guess it's got to be from a cost perspective somehow. Tax benefits, yeah. Both, right? And I think... What, what, I, what, what I think happened is that now small companies who could, no, couldn't, could not offer defined benefit plans because that was a heavy cost, mm. 401Ks, they're very easy to install, very low cost, very easy for the employees to do. Now, smaller companies can come and say, hey, I can offer benefits to my employees as well. It helps hiring practices. Uh, so it was a win-win for all. Uh, and that's really how the whole thing got rocking. But we talk, to, we talk to clients about 401Ks all the time. I think that's where we start a lot of our conversations, right? Yeah, because that's usually like the first thing you do, right? You get a job, you get defaulted on the 401k, you're putting money away whether you know it or not. Maybe you know what you're invested in, um, which that's kind of a big thing too, right? I, I know where I came from, a lot of people like getting those jobs that have like, you know, some sort of pension, some sort of defined benefit plan. So really because you don't have to think about it too much, right? You kind of know the company's going to take care of you and stuff like that. But it sounds like when they made this big switch over, it was more of a shifting of risk, right? It's, it's more risk on the employee versus the employer of now. They kind of got to figure out their stuff. So, like, what were people typically doing when those when it first flipped over to foreign Ks? Like, did they have, people have any idea what they were doing? So, I don't think anybody has ever has any idea what they're doing. <laughs> we just said the IRS had no idea what they were doing when they created foreign Ks, and some guy behind a desk figured it out and helped, uh, seemingly helped everybody out, helped employees and helped employers out. Um, but because it was cheap and because it was a better option for a lot of companies than a defined benefit plan, it blew up right away. And basically today, if you're looking for a job, uh, most jobs offer those benefits. Um, so when we talk to clients, all the, when we talk to clients and we do f our financial planning, sure, 401ks have a limit. Chris, you mentioned what was the limit before that you mentioned? Just went up for next year, so it's 23000 
for an right. employee contribution. So there's a limit to what you can put in, but most people sign up right away in their job paperwork. They sign up to contribute to their 401k. Their second election's open to their 401k. Right. It's the first investment a lot of people make. Yet financial advisors often don't discuss it um, because we like to provide awesome service to our clients. I think it's where we start a lot of our conversations, knowing that that's where it starts for a lot of our clients. And those are uh, baseline conversations that I think are sometimes supremely important. Um, clients ask us for advice. What type of advice do we give on 401ks? Yeah, um, right. First advice is, right, should I be doing my 401k? Right? What are the benefits for contributing to the 401k, right? Difference between traditional and Roth. Um, and then I think the the biggest decision, right, once you decide, okay, hey, this is something I want to do, is choosing the funds um, within the 401k, right? Because as we've seen with clients, um, you know, over the last few years working with them, a lot of clients are set up very incorrectly, I should say, um, just in terms of their allocation. Yeah. Well, part of that's... Why, right? Because the foreign case deferred. It's deferred till when, though? At a minimum, right? Like, you can't touch it till you're 59 and a half, right? So if 25, 30 years old, getting your first job, or you're finally contributing to 4K, you have a pretty long runway before we're going to touch that money, right? So that, that's a big way when we're having these conversations with clients that we have to frame around, hey, if you're investing in your 4K, that might look very different from the way that you're investing in a brokerage account, right, or, or some other type of, type of vehicle, because you got to look at the time horizon. So I, I think a lot of clients we speak to generally are maxing out or trying to max out um, at the beginning, right? They, they have the capability to, so they're jumping on that. Um, what's interesting is I think the first question that a lot of people think about with their 401k is how much should I put in, right? What do I do? What do I contribute? Um, at the beginning, most people didn't contribute to their 401k. They didn't do anything. Um, it, was, it was offered. In the early 2000s, a lot of companies required uh, a three, they would start, they didn't require, but they would Ex they just default you. Yeah, so they default you, right, into a 3% or 4% allocation. Um, if they were nice, maybe they give a match. Maybe they wouldn't on the 3 4%. But they default you into it, and you'd have to say no if I wanted less, right? And uh, generally, that gets people to move. So I think a lot, of, a lot of what you think about is how do I get people to move and then what decisions I make in there. Is 3% usually enough to retire? I don't know. I can't do the math. I told you guys I'm going to touch a math. If you're investing in, uh, you know, uh, Renaissance technologies or something like that. Might be pretty good. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, that's it, usually the biggest change that we're making when we speak with early on, right? So it's the first thing that they're doing, kind of fit, seeing how that fits into the rest of the plan. Um, and the main thing that we always talk about is the, the investment strategy, right? Kind of what you're doing. And there's actually this study yeah. that came out, I don't know if you guys saw a couple of weeks ago, um, I think it was Financial Times, where they were looking at different equity breakdowns. So they're looking at a 50-50 all equity portfolio where 50%, don't quote me on this, but you guys will... I read the article, 50% domestic and 50% international, right? And then a 60-40 portfolio. Um, and what they essentially found, maybe this is a surprise for some, not a surprise for others, that equities outperformed, right? Equities over the long haul outperformed a 60-40 portfolio. But it brings to the bigger question is what we see a lot, and I think you guys back me up on this, is what, what's usually the, the, the thing that we see most clients invested in before they meet with us in a 401k? Yeah, I, I would say... Without a doubt, 98, 99% of attorneys that we speak with are, are just clients in general. Um, they're defaulting into something called a target retirement data yeah. fund. Um, and for those of you out there that uh, aren't sure how you're allocated in your 401k, I advise you to take a look. And I'll tell you, 95% or higher, you're, you're probably in one of these. Now, what a target date fund is uh, internally is, right, let's just say you signed up for the 401k. Um, you see all of these, maybe there's a list of 20 different funds that you'll see typically in your 401k provider. Um, 
some will give you, you know, they'll ask you questions when you estimate on retiring, right? You'll say 2040, 2050, 2060. So what it's really doing is, is defaulting you into this one certain fund. Now, what is this fund doing, right? Internally, it has algorithms built into it that allows you to shift from a very heavily equity-weighted portfolio to a bond-weighted portfolio as you get closer and closer to retirement. Um, so in theory, what it's doing is, is trying to de-risk itself, right? Um, which conventional wisdom, um, school of thought will say, hey, that's that's accurate, right? That's what we should do. As we get closer to retirement, let's get more conservative, right? Because we're trying to solve for volatility. Um, but one of the things that we teach our clients all the time is that risk and volatility are, are not the same thing. Yeah, I think the definition of risk and volatility sometimes interconnect and intersect. But risk and volatility definitely don't mean the same thing, right? They don't have the same definitions. Um, so are target date funds a bad thing or a good thing? I don't think they're a bad thing at all. Um, but I think there's you know, we'll kind of dive into this a little bit further. Uh, there's ways to certainly optimize uh, what you're holding in your 401k and really just get more value out of what you're investing in. Right. So you asked me, guys, like we discussed before, where, where 401ks came from, where these, where the idea came from. Target day funds were also a creation, right? Everything's a creation. Uh, what were they trying to solve? Um, in the 1980s, as 401ks really came, 401ks came onto line, a lot of people began to use them. Uh, industrial psychologists and different uh, behavioral psychologists started to study people reacted and how people were planning for retirement and what they noticed uh, they did a study of uh, teachers teachers use what's the pension teachers always use uh ti craft right yeah well t okay the, the right, provider so yeah. yeah the providers ti craft yeah. most institutions use it um they looked at it and they said let's see what people do over their career do they make investment choices how do they make those choices what's going on uh, and what they found they looked at the uh, uh number of asset changes people were making over their lifetime within the plan uh, what they found were the average person was making how many changes? How much changes do you guys think the average person was making? It's either going to be very little or a lot. Throw it out. Over 30 years? Yeah. 100. It wasn't over 30 years because 1980s, but they were doing lifetime studies. So how many, yeah, right, like how many times years. are they reallocating? Yeah, how many times are they changing their allocation? Wow. I would say uh, maybe 30 times. On average? You're talking about per year? Zero. No, Zero. in general, over lifetime in the plan. Little. Yeah. So individuals weren't adjusting, right? So target date funds sound like a great thing. If you're not adjusting, we'll do what? We'll adjust we'll for, you. for you. Yeah. Same yeah. thing yeah. if we'll you're not right. If you're not enrolling your 401k plan, we'll auto-enroll you, and then you'll have to choose if you want to opt out, right? It's easier to get in. It's the same concept. And I think a lot of that is built by, uh, for the betterment of society. When you think about a global program, right? It's a global program where we're trying to make societal changes. Uh, but on an individual level, what's the point of that article? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Well, I think you got to put it in context, right? Like, if all you're doing is the 401k, maybe a targeted fund makes the most sense, right? Because it's going to keep it simple for you. It's going to do it. But, you know, we have a lot of clients that are doing other things. They're doing real estate. They're doing other brokerage accounts, CTS, mutual fund right. stocks, whatever it might be. You want to make sure that from a, you know, broader perspective, all those different accounts are lined up the way that they can be to get the most optimization out of them. I mean, we've, we've looked at some of these target date funds in the past, and the market does around 7 to 10%, right, on average, S&P 500. Target date funds. They over how long? That's over, the last, every rolling over 30 years. Rolling 30 if you, period, yeah. you look at it, yeah, S&P, yeah, 7 to 10. Um, and the target date funds were below that, right? Probably by a couple points. 3 to 4 percentage point. Yep. 3 to 4 percentage points. So the way we kind of reverse engineered the math is saying if you were investing in target date funds to match what the market was doing, you'd have to put in 40% more of your paycheck just to do what the market was doing over that same time. So it would cost you 40% more per year? And the target date fund versus an all equity fund to end up at the same spot at retirement. Exactly. Sounds like a big number. Yeah. Right. So 
before, even before this article, I think when we, sp- we speak to a lot of like, I think last week, Bobby and I were speaking to a 27 year old young associate uh, at a big law firm. Uh, and when they asked us about their 401k, we started to give recommendations on our 401k, knowing that they were going to be able to do a brokerage account and other things within their growth environment. Uh, the first thing we recommend is you go all equity, uh, which sounds like it will create more volatility. Does all equity have historically have more volatility than absolutely fixed income? It does. Absolutely. So, but does it affect that individual? It shouldn't. I mean, you know, for a 27 year old, even someone that's in their thirties, even late forties, you can argue even in their fifties, um, you're not going to be touching this for 15, 20, 30 years. Um, you know, you look at the history of the stock market, right? Um, even when you do see big crashes, right? Um, you know, I was looking at a study uh, earlier last week and, you know, it shows you the the worst 10, 15 years in the stock market, right? That is typically preceded by big market up years in the next year, next five years. Um, so as long as you can find ways to stomach those losses, um, and it's it's not an easy thing, right? From a psychological standpoint, nobody likes seeing that their account's down, you know, 20, 30% and in any given year. Um, but, but especially within the 401k, you got to think about this. This is, su- this is such a long-term investment, right? You're not right. touching this anyways. Right, if you can ride it out, right, speak to an advisor, speak to someone that can kind of coach you through these moments, um, you're going to make out so much better in the long run. Right. I think it's always an individualized scenario and individualized uh, situation in terms of what particular advice per client. But I think that overall philosophically, and I think what the article comes into support is the idea that all equities over a long period of time will outperform anything that's adding fixed income into this portfolio, right? That's what not, not, not guaranteed, but that's what history's kind of shown us, right? right? So it depends on your flight path, I guess, right. your path to retirement, which, which is a really helpful way of thinking about it. And I think, I, I think it's something we've thought out in the past. What I find interesting here is something, it makes sense logically, um, but uh, a, lot of, a lot of decisions are made on just emotion, what, emotion right? Comfort level, risk profiles, things like that. So I think at a baseline, we clearly understand that from a perspective of you're not going to do anything, it definitely makes more sense to have allocations work and change throughout your career. Um, but if you want to kind of get above and beyond, I think the averages, if the average is going to end up in a target retirement date fund, uh, it might make sense to be a little bit more thoughtful about your individualized decision. Especially when you're doing things outside of that. I think that's, that, that's a big key, right? When you have other things going on and stuff like that, right? Because you, you can be more selective in terms of, the way that investments are set up from a tax perspective, if you're not doing an IRA or 401k or an IRA, right? Because if you own certain types of bonds, there's tax advantages owning it. other types of accounts, then you maybe don't own some bonds in your 401k. So really it depends on looking at the entire picture and zooming out. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. There's an amazing book called Nudge, um, written by uh, some of these, uh, Richard Toller, Richard Toller, I believe his name is. He won oh, the Nobel Prize. It's TH, but I think it's Toller. Um, I could be wrong. Um, but anyways, he won Nobel Nobel Prize. I must be really smart. But uh, he won. He, he was a behavioral psychologist or social scientist, and he spent a lot of time thinking about the impacts people's choices have on their retirement perspectives. And a lot of a lot of those types of studies are the ones that led into target retirement date funds, uh, auto opting to four hundred one ks and things like that. And I think they do help society, but. If we think about what, what our clients want more than anything else, they want they want to uh, retire early. They want to retire early, right? <laughs> so th- that requires doing well or saving a lot. I mean, I think a lot of people want safety, right? At the end of the day, in, in terms of their investments, their life, they want comfort, stuff like that, right? Like it's it's not just financial advisors investing in four hundred one k's, right? So for you know a blue collar worker that's you know working a nine to five, like 
they're not going to have time to be thinking about those things and looking at those things. So you know, if they don't work with an advisor, some of those things are on autopilot, probably more helpful for somebody like that. Right. So I think that's, I think the assumption is people don't do anything, unfortunately. Uh, and that's why uh, Richard Toller will call himself a choice architect. Uh, he's helping people on a mass level make choices. And if we want to be part of the mass level, we can be part of the mass level. Uh, but when I think about inflation, when I think about money, let's assume everything's in a box, right? Let's assume everybody's putting 22.5 into their 401k every single year for a 30-year period, and everybody's in a target date fund. Uh, I think at the end, we all look the same, right? Right. So how do you, how do you get above that line? Right. And I, I, right, how do you get above that line? How do you become wealthy? How do you retire early? Uh, I think with anything, anything in our financial lives, if we put time and effort and thought into it, I think we have the ability to do better. So I think that's the encouragement here is, yeah, choice architects help us, governments help us. They provide Social Security, right? How's that looking? Sounds good. Let's see if we get it. Um, but if you really want to think through the way you want to live your life and really getting better for yourself, which I think we all want, uh, it requires thought, it requires help, and it requires management. So that's definitely where we want to come, on, come in on. Uh, articles like this really support different points of view. Um, but let's talk about getting rich. Who's getting rich? Who got rich last week? Chris, you you. you you were talking about this earlier. Who didn't get rich? Who didn't get rich week? last week? Uh, the market did really well. <laughs> so we've, uh, you know, I read a stat the other day that we've actually had the the last six weeks. This has been the best run up in market history, aside from twenty twenty COVID and Q four. It's been the best six week period of all time. Well, according to a lot of economists, we've been on the way to a recession for about two years now. So you know, keep screaming at the clouds long enough. Client of mine sent me, yeah, no. client of mine sent me an article. Um, I think I think the the advisor's name was something Dent. So that sounded kind of like a Batman movie. Harvey um, Dent. Harvey. Different, different H, H dent. Um, but front page of uh, the New York Post, beautifully red tabloid, uh, and it said 2024 will be the worst year in the history of the entirety of the market. Um, so wow. gets people to read it, just, right? Just for reference, right, because I know uh, there's a few weeks until this podcast comes out. What we were just talking about, today's date is uh, December 20th, just, just for the, reference. What's the market up? Today? Year to date, we're up uh, a little over, right around 23% year to date, the S&P. Yeah. All right. NASDAQ, I think, is closer to 40, Dow, 42. Dow was at an all-time high, right? Dow hit an all-time all-time high, I think, a couple of days ago. Um, nice. S&P's approaching it. Not too far off, yeah. How la- how'd last year look? Not great. Not good, huh? Yeah. I think we were down 19% in the S&P. Dow was 11, 12. Well, we're, uh, well, we're, we're treasuries at last year, into this year. Well, that, well, that's, you know, coming back to this whole thing, right? Everybody thought the whole 60-40 portfolio was kind of bulletproof. Um, and we saw how last year really proved that um, that wasn't true, right? Yeah. You know, at one point in the year, I think late in Q3, a 60-40 portfolio was down the same amount as a, a 40-60. So bonds got hit just as hard last year, which is uh, which was a huge problem, especially for some of these target retirement date funds. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So I think the long short of it is if you're in it for the long haul, be in it for the long haul, right, in terms of that. Um one of the bigger financial news stories that came out last week is the Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals, did not sign Shohei Otani, unfortunately, but he did sign for like... Was that the expectation? <laughs> we could always dream. A guy, a guy can dream. He signed for a measly $2 bucks a year for the next 10 years, but then gets a $68 million payout per year for the following 10 years. Did you guys see that in the news? Maybe. This is uh, Otani? Otani. Yeah. yeah. I mean, talk, talk about a team player. Right? Yeah. Deferring, uh, well, I mean, I'm just saying. Is, right? that, why is, it, is that why he deferred it? <laughs> That's what he it. says. I heard other things. That's what he says. But to get out of Cali. Well, he'll get out of Cali. Yeah, there's a rule, I think, if you're, you know, don't quote me on this, but uh, right if, I think, if 
you're still receiving income from your previous employer, whatever it may be, and you're you've lived out of that state for let's call it two to five years, whatever the time period is, then you you don't have to pay taxes and where you earn the money. So, so some you, of those it's where you reside. You think he's going to be in so Cal- that's, that's California at that point? No, no, come on. <laughs> Right. So as, from a financial advisor perspective, he's doing the right thing. From a, a team perspective, he's also doing the right thing. You're, you're probably not they happy if you're his it. agent, though, right? I did hear. I don't know if this is true. <laughs> you're like, damn. Well, I, I don't know. That's an annuity, I guess, for his agent? Right? Yeah, it's an annuity, annuity yeah. for both. Well, the big, the big thing was, like, it's, it's kind of like what Tom Brady's theory would take pay cuts, right? So not really a pay cut, but he uh, left them more cap room, right? Because now there's some calculation they do where, like, only 45 mil or whatever it is counts against the luxury tax, so... See, the way I always understood the Tom Brady situation and those, like, uh, situations where the athlete takes less for the betterment of the team is, hush, hush, don't worry, we'll take care of it on the back end, we'll get him like, speaking arrangements, right. the team will, you know. Yeah, yeah. Or, he was making money in other But then, like, Tom Brady ended up in, like, Tampa Bay, so it turned out not to be true, and sounds like Belichick might be on his way out. So things, from a financial perspective, uh, unless you have something on paper or a contract, I don't know if I trust the hush, hush money. I mean, Brady's wife was also loaded, too, so he was probably thinking... A little bit of that, like live off her money. That changed too. So that changed too. Yeah, but uh, Tampa Bay. I did hear on the Otani contract though that he's deferring that money. I don't know if this is correct, but I heard they are not paying interest on that money. They're not. They're not. Right. But I guarantee that was baked into the contract, right? Yeah. It kind of sounds. You know, on paper it sounds. They did like present day value. It's like a five hundred million dollar contract or something. I think still would have been the biggest contract in sports history. Who who owns the Dodgers? Well, man. Magic Johnson and some other people. Right. I think Guggenheim Bank. So private equity or investment banks owns the Dodgers. They say, hey, we're not going to pay you interest on the spread. I assume like any other investment bank, they figure they'll make interest on the spread over time. And uh, I think it's a win-win for now all three parties, the ownership group, the athlete, and uh, the team. Well, if the market does uh, 7%, it doubles every 10 years, right? That's the math. They throw that money in uh, in the S&P and they'll have a... a billion dollars, right? In ten years to pay out Otani. Is that the math? I guess, yeah. A billion? Oh, you just billion's yeah. very round. If you double the money, take you know, <laughs> take the five hundred million that the uh, present day value, throw it in a couple non-target date funds, and uh, that should uh, be how it works out, right? So, so, is he using the traditional or a Roth? I think he's gonna just pay a lot of taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's affected. But less because he's not gonna be in Cali. Right, no. yeah, that's that. That's our number one financial advice: is try not to live in California. Definitely maxing out. He's definitely maxing out. He's got a four hundred one k. One hundred percent. Right. I hope he's got a pension, right? They probably do. I think that's they do. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, coming to join us. Please subscribe. Check out our podcast online, and visit our website www.powerforwardgroup.com. We'll see you next time.